theme, the rest of the chapter unfolds, at least to verse 16. This section we see today has to do with that unity played out in our diversity, in the variety of gifts we have in the midst of the church. Every one of you, young and old, have gifts given to you, abilities, talents that are from the Lord, that with spiritual eyes are used for spiritual service. And they've been given for spiritual purpose. They're, they're from Jesus himself. He gives them to his children. And we see that's for the purpose of building the unity. And all of this moves towards a strengthening of the church in maturity. So unity in Christ, unity in our diversity of gifts for the purpose of maturing, so we are one. And all of this accomplishes the goal of not just making us a holy huddle, only caring about ourselves, but the primary way we have an impact on the world around us for the gospel is by practicing this gospel unity among us. So as we grow in this unity, Ephesians describes, we become a mouthpiece for Christ. We are able to fulfill the prayer that Jesus prayed, Lord, make them one as we are one, so that they may know, the world may know that you sent me. That's what Jesus prayed. So the unity of the church will necessarily give us an ability to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus. So we're not doing this just so we have a club. It's so that we can accent the gospel of Christ to the world around us that needs it so badly. So with that, we come to this portion of Ephesians chapter 4. I'll start reading at verse 7. I'll read to verse 14 to gather the the fuller context, but our study will be 7 to 12. I remind you, this is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word for us, and we need this word, starting at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let's bow together as I ask the Lord for his guidance this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so very precious to us. We are filled with excitement and joy when your word brings us clarity and direction. As we study this portion of Ephesians together, please prompt each of us to actively engage in serving each other in this church. We have been living through a strange time where there has seemed to be less opportunity to serve and fellowship with others. Please give us increased opportunity for these things through the hearing of your word today especially. Please make us doers of what it says and not hearers only. And we pray this while totally acknowledging once again our need for your Spirit's aid. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the more vivid pictures of the dynamics that exist in the church in our life together and our need to be both unified yet understand uh, we are wonderfully diverse. There's a variety of people here. 
your personalities, your talents, your abilities, your spiritual gifts, and I'll speak to how these all really roll up together when you're a Christian. They're all different among you. And there's lots of ways in which we're the same when we go to a church because there's something we like about it or we live in a certain neighborhood. That's true. And there are greater diversities you would love to have at the church, but you tend to look like the area you're in. This isn't about that. This is about the diversity that exists within the membership spiritually in order to live out the life of the church that God intends for us that makes us unified and effective to be mouthpieces for Christ. We would want what I'm saying here from the scriptures to be true of Grace Church on the corner, Hope Alive next door, Blue Valley Baptist, that in their local manifestations, they too would realize they have these same spiritual gifts in their midst. And it helps them be unified so that they can be more effective in the world around us for Christ. One of my favorite pictures for this is a picture of a football team. And think in terms of the offense, the offensive unit. Football is a game that requires a, a, really a tremendous diversity of people that are on the field at the same time. You know, other sports, the, the athletes themselves can look very similar across the board. If you get five guys in a hockey team, they generally, physique-wise and speed, they're, they're similar. Same with soccer, other sports. But when it comes to football, it's very different. They have to be very synchronized, yet they're completely different in their sizes and their abilities and their shapes. Think about offensive linemen. I mean, these individuals are huge, huge men, 300-plus pounds normally, especially at, at least at the college and professional level. These men have to move pretty quickly for their size, so that takes quite a bit of ability. They have to memorize the playbook like nobody else. Sometimes they get the stereotype of not being smart. That's not true at all. Linemen have to memorize lots and be ready to do and act quickly to do the thing that they're supposed to do in concert with each other. They're big, they're strong, they have to move quickly sometimes, they have to stay firm other times. They have a diversity of things they have to do, and only a handful of people can do it just this way. Uh, But then think of a wide receiver. That's usually a taller, skinnier person um, who can run really quickly, uh, run up the sidelines long ways for balls, sometimes crossing in the middle. They've got to be fearless, has to have a certain attitude about what they do. They have to have really good hands to be able to catch the ball. Think of a running back, usually a little shorter, stouter, thicker, Someone who's got to be able to bounce off of people, run through people. They have to have a certain fearlessness. They have to be able to hold tight to the ball in a different way than sometimes than a receiver would. A different skill set is required of someone who's a running back. They've got to be able to block, too. Think of the tight end who is on the line, has to be able to block like a lineman, so they have to be pretty big. But they also have to be able to roll off the line and catch the ball, just like a receiver does. A kicker. They come on just simply to kick the ball, and it, someone who punts the ball could be totally different. Uh, just think in terms of offense anyways, and you think of the quarterback, uh, probably the most important person, that's who you usually think of, but he can't do any of it without the rest of them in concert together. In fact, he depends on all of them moving as a unit more than anyone probably. And he might throw the ball, he might keep the ball, he might hand the ball off. That takes a different set of skills. Yet the team that's most successful, that does the best job, figures out that there's a need for everybody. Everybody's celebrated for that and recognized for it. You can't, if you miss one lineman in today's NFL, the, your $25 million plus, $40 million from Kansas City, quarterback's going to get run over. So believe you me, that quarterback cares about that lineman a lot and takes care of him. So there's a, a beautiful concert that happens between these individuals to make that unit move forward and be successful. The church is very similar to this. 
We are made up of all sorts of people that have to work in concert. We depend on the diversity of the gifts you have. Whatever it has that you've been given, that God's given you, is important to us. And to to the degree that we're using our gifts like this, and we're recognizing how to serve in the body of Christ, to the degree we do this, the more vigorous we are, the more effective we are. I think the more we become one, which is the theme of this chapter, and the more effective we are in preaching and demonstrating the gospel to the world. So recognize this as we listen to this passage unfold, how it is that you fit into this somehow in your life and in the gift set the Lord Jesus has given you. Sinclair Ferguson kind of captured this notion about this passage when he says, there is something important to note about the unity of the church. It does not lack variety. Rather, it is the unity within the rich diversity of believers whose gifts and graces complement each other. We share in one body, says Paul, but each one of us functions in a different way. Brothers and sisters, we can see here in these few verses our diverse roles and abilities. They're granted by Jesus to enrich this church. And he's doing this work in other local churches too. Christ himself has designed us to be different between each other, unified yet different as individuals, and that's to be celebrated. That's great. Different in our roles, different in our abilities. That's okay. If you, you have, only have a couple things you're really good at, do those for the glory of God. If you've given a bunch of things, do those for the glory of God. It's not a mistake, any of this. It's actually by God's design. Let's go to the text and see first. It's Jesus Christ himself, our Savior himself, personally and intentionally, who gives spiritual gifts to each believer. Verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us. Grace is God's undeserved favor given to us. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us because of Christ. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Jesus measures out what he gives you. It's on purpose that you have the gifts, abilities, and talents that you have as a Christian. And it says all of us in verse 6, and now it says each of us in verse 7. Before, it was all of us who had one faith, one Lord, one baptism. The corporate body. Now, though, he's saying in verse 7, but individually, you have a diversity of gifts. Then verse 8. Here, Paul is quoting Psalm 68, which we'll look at more closely in a moment. Therefore, it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul is taking Psalm 68 about King David in ascribing it to Jesus, who when he ascended into heaven, then gave gifts from heaven to men. So we've been recipients of gifts intentionally by Jesus, every one of us, this gracious giving of the gifts that God gives us. Now, notice this word grace. It's been used in Ephesians before. You're familiar with it. By grace, we've been saved. That's saving grace. That's the grace that God exercises to call us from the kingdom of darkness and place us into the kingdom of light in his son. That's saving grace. Now he's talking about serving grace, enabling grace. After we've been saved and redeemed, we're in him, we're justified, he gives us more grace so that we can serve him, that we're enabled to follow him to do what he commands. This is his enabling grace. We'll call it his serving grace. There's his saving grace and there is his serving grace. Now, I pause for a moment and and give this challenge to us. I know this is true of me. 
I could sit for hours and ponder the saving grace of God through Christ. I never get tired of it. I always, on a regular basis, spend time contemplating the scripture about this and reading about it. Uh, Because I'm forgetful, I'm prone to my sinfulness and my trust in self, and reflecting on the saving grace of God, it elevates me, it gives me great joy. And I think in our churches, especially in Reformed churches, we love to focus on this, and we should. In the Sunday school class, we're studying the the wonderful, uh, I call it the Reformation celebration, the doctrines of God's grace to us, the saving grace of Christ. Where we might need a challenge as believers in this tradition is acting out on the serving grace of God that he gives us. We become so bottled up with the saving grace that we, I'm saying practically, not technically doctrinally here, but we practically don't come out of the bottle much with, in, in manifest to other people. We're, we're content to sit and listen and maybe not get out and act and involve ourselves in fellowship with one another, serving one another, meeting needs that are needed necessary, speaking words of encouragement, um, all the ways, praying for others, joining in ministry efforts, contributing to ministry efforts, any one of a hundred ways we could become engaged in serving, in ministering. Here we are reminded of the saving grace of Christ, using this word grace reflects us back to chapters one and two of Ephesians especially, But now we're reading something of the serving grace that God gives us, this enabling grace, verse 7, that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the way he describes Jesus' administering or doling out the gifts is by using Psalm 68. Now, this psalm, Paul's use of the psalms is always a challenge for interpreters, and this is no exception. One thing that hurts us a bit when we read the English version So he's quoting Psalm 68 in verse 8 of the passage before you. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The problem is that's not the exact quote from Psalm 68. But what we do in English when we translate the Greek is we're we're adding these quotes here, and it, it makes us think in our English setting that he's giving the exact quote. I think the best way to understand this is in one sentence, Paul's capturing the whole of Psalm 68, which is an ascension psalm, not just a couple verses from Psalm 68. I think that's the best way. Interpreters have many ways to describe what Paul's doing here, but it helps us to understand in Psalm 68, listen to how it unfolds. It's about David, the king, who's returning from victory, and there's a celebration with the return of the king in how he's lauded with gifts and such. And then as Psalm 68 unfolds, the king ultimately, as he receives his kingship and he's exalted, he ends up turning around and giving great benefits to his people. As the conqueror conquers the vanquished, he takes spoils for himself, or he's given spoils to himself, and then eventually the people gain from this because their king has ascended. That's the the first application of Psalm 68, and then Paul's taking it and saying, this is Jesus And Jesus gives this to us. Listen to what it says in Psalm 68. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. This is talking about God's great power in delivering his people. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So now there's the, the representative of God's righteousness and his law existed in Jerusalem. Then it says in Psalm 68, verse 18, you ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train. Think of all the times David led Israel to battle and won, and then leads out in battle with the spoils of that war. And you led captives in your train. 
and receiving gifts among men. So in Psalm 68, the original version is about the king receiving these gifts for his victory, even among the rebellious that the Lord may dwell there. So it's a little different from what we see in in Ephesians 4 verse 8, where it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I think the answer, again, is that Paul is capturing the whole of what happens in Psalm 68. After David wins, he's exalted, he's given much, and then the people benefit from his righteous rule, and God, through David, gives them all sorts of benefits. That's the ultimate end goal. And David is ultimately meant to be a picture of Christ. He's a Christological king, pointing to the one who fulfills it. The last verses of Psalm 68 help us here. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. He gives power and strength to his people. And what we're talking about in this context is God giving us spiritual abilities to glorify his name. Now, I want you to notice one other interpretive challenge here. If you look at verse 9 and verse 10, what do you think it means when it says that he descended? I'm going to tell you what it means. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it not mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? I think this is clear enough that it's a reference to his incarnation, that he would humble himself, the second person of the Trinity, he would humble himself in order to pay the price for us, and then he would be exalted as the king, and then it unfolds that the king from his place of kingship distributes to us spiritual gifts. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Summing it up, the great King Jesus ascends to his throne, and from his throne, this picture of the conquering king and general returning with his spoils for the people, he gives us these spoils, and these spoils are these gifts, these abilities to enhance the life of the church so the church becomes more unified and more powerful in its witness for Christ. While the church is one body, We are not all the same. Each of us is divinely equipped in a unique way as Jesus gives you gifts. We're not all exact exact replicas, as John Stott said. He also said we're not mass reproductions of each other. Our diversity of gifting is on purpose. The church family is an exciting diversity. No one has all the gifts necessary for every challenge the church will face, not even close. We need each other. Every family, by the way, as important as you are as family units ordained by God, you do not in your family unit have all the gifts necessary for your spiritual nurture. You have to be part of the larger church. This is how we all benefit even as families. But grace was given, verse 7, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, as a way of mobilizing you, how will we act out on this? If you have been given gifts, you're sitting there saying, Pastor, what is my gift? How do I know what to do? Where will I gain clarity about how to serve? Well, God has provided for us a gift in the midst of the gifts. And it's alluded to in verse 11 and verse 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Here, this is how we know how to be mobilized. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus appointed pastor teachers in particular, in application today, to equip church members for service. We'll unpack this a bit. So he gives us people who have the appointment of equipping the rest of us. 
And it's a great gift of God to give us this. And it's in the form of a legacy that's lead to a reali- that leads to a reality. Notice the order of God's appointment of helpers for us to walk in Christ, to serve in his church. He says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, a linguistic note. The shepherds and teachers, many scholars say, for I think good linguistic reason, that this is really one officer, one role, shepherd, teacher, pastor, teacher. It's also used later in synonymous terms with elder um, or overseers. So it's fair to say that this is speaking of the office of the elders of the church who are to be pastors and teachers. They already have the gifts in shepherding, gifts in teaching and explaining God's word. This gift, the last mention here, is the one that goes on timelessly from the time of the apostles. Now back up and look at the others, apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Apostle can mean many things, and it could be a term that a small a would go into those who are sent in a general way. But the context of Ephesians seems to point to the way Paul spoke of the apostles like he had become an apostle because he was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. So this is the office of apostle that was only for the inaugural period of the church's development, Paul being one, Peter being another, and so forth. So the apostles were given, they were given initially for the giving of the word of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the apostolic word given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we would have the scriptures. And when they're writing, and Paul's living at this time, the apostles are there. And the prophets are also in a similar office, kind of apprentices or or deputies of the apostles, you might say, that also have some special spiritual ability while the Bible's being finished. Um, to give testimony. Um, You could say, though, the prophetic role could be someone just gifted in speaking the truth when no one else will. That can be a prophetic role. The evangelist, that could be someone who, uh, not just that they preach the gospel like an evangelistic crusade in that thought, but rather people that God gives special fruit to when they preach the gospel, and they seem to have the ability by God's appointment to gather people in the gospel and plant churches. I mean, church planters are often called evangelists because they go out and have an uncanny ability, a spiritual ability to talk to anyone about the gospel and people respond. You and I should always be preaching the gospel to everyone we meet as opportunity arises. But there's some people, when they do this, there's just a gathering that seems to happen. So the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the evangelists could be something more timeless. But we, could, we should make no mistake that shepherds and teachers They're accented over and over again throughout the New Testament writings. These are the ongoing uh, leaders of the church, the elders of the church, who have at their disposal the word of God to teach the people of God, and in so teaching them, will guide them and shepherd them into using their gifts, your gifts. So you see that it's the role of church leadership not to do the work of ministry for you, but to equip you, us, the church now, to do the work of the ministry collectively. You've got to have faithful shepherds who are helping us see what it is we should be doing. But we should be doing it collectively as a church. Christ appointed these people for that role. And we see what their role is for, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. When I was just starting to get interested in being a pastor, because I thought the Lord was calling me to make the gospel clear, it was a very simple calling early in my teens. I've shared that story with you before. But I was all excited about it, and I got the impression, because I came from a Roman Catholic background where the priest and the clergy only ever did 
the work of ministry and you just were a lay person and you really didn't engage too much in it. It was kind of, it came off that way and it actually literally came off that way when I asked about involvement in various things. There were certain things you could get involved with, other things that's for the priesthood or, the, or, or for the nuns, whatever. So when I got into the Protestant church, if you will, a bi- more Bible-based church, and they would talk about the work of the ministry, it took a while to get the idea out of my head that that's for the, the professional ministers to do. And I was sitting in a, an evening service once thinking, maybe the Lord's calling me to be a pastor, but how do you do all this stuff? I mean, there's so many things to be done in the ministry, I can't imagine doing it all. And this missionary came in from the Philippines, and he was kind of on a, on a break, and he was a little frustrated because it had been very difficult on the field. And he was a pastor at heart, and he was on the mission field, and it, he was growing weary because he was trying to do everything, everything for the church. Um, he was trying to visit everybody, encourage everybody, teach everybody, visit everybody in the hospital. Um, he was trying to take care of physical needs that people had. People were hungry and so forth. And it came to him um, in a study of this passage that his job isn't to do all that. It's to equip people to do all that, to equip us to do all that. And it really went off in my mind and helped me be encouraged about going into a vocation or a calling that would be very, very tiring, wearying if it was up to me to do it. And I thought as I studied that this model of elders shepherding the flock made the most biblical sense anyways coming out of the book of Acts. And then as you see it unfold, it made more sense as to how it could be possible if a team of shepherds could oversee a church, serve a church, and help a church become mobilized. That's the personal angle of the application of this that I would share with you. But our role as elders for you is to help equip you to do the various aspects of of community life among the brethren, to equip you. That word can mean several things. It can mean prepare. It can even mean repair in the original Greek. I like to describe it this way. I had a job when I was in seminary working for a grounds crew, and my boss would give us assignments when we checked into the office and tell us to go to some part of the campus and do whatever particular job it was. And the job we all hated the most but had to be done was line trimming. Now, that's just a glorified word for weed whacking. And that's with, you know, a weed whacker. And there's nothing glorious or fun about it. It's St. Louis, 100 degrees and humid. And you had to wear jeans because if you got into a patch of poison ivy with the weed whacker, you were laid up for a long time. So it was brutal. No one liked it. So I'd grab very, very rashly, I would grab the weed whacker off the wall and head off to cross campus, which was quite a ways away, almost a half a mile from where we were in the shed. And my boss say, hold on, Tony. He'd pull off some goggles off the side and say, you've got to have these. Then he'd pull off some pruners because he wanted me to do some pruning of a tree that was around the married student's housing where I was going to be weed whacking. He handed me several different tools and items to bring with me so that I was equipped when I got there. I didn't have to get over there and then, oh, I forgot something, and walk all the way across. He was a smart, smart supervisor. He equipped me with all the stuff he could think I might need when I was there. He was always right. I remember him handing me an extra item, and I think to myself, man, I want to carry this over, and sure enough, I'd need it. The elders in the life of us as a church serve the purpose of recognizing what's necessary for the church to function as God's appointed it, and then helps to equip every member related to your gifts, your abilities, your talents, helps you serve with those gifts, because that's where you will be the most satisfied, extreme, find the most joy, is when you're living out that serving grace that God's giving us. And that's the role of the eldership, the pastors of the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you know 
the most important tool the elders use to equip you is God's Word. It's God's Word, and then the application of His Word flows out of that shepherding ministry of the shepherd teachers of the church. The role of the eldership is not to do the ministry for the membership, is to equip us. Admittedly, one of the things that's been a challenge about the church growing larger since the time I was here earlier is that, and I'm not calling anyone out on this, it's just the reality, is you get bigger, you get to feel like you don't have to do as much or it's already being done. And maybe you just think it's being done so I won't ask. I guarantee that's not so. Um, in being engaged with starting another church through our church, Lee Summit, it's, you know, everybody has to do everything, have to do does something. There's no one that can say, you know, let someone else do it. It doesn't get done if it happens that way. And that's how it was here for a long time. Just as a church grows, there's many things that are better about what we can do. But the challenge is people can very easily sit on the bench and not get noticed. So my challenge to you from God's word is to recognize Jesus has given you a gift. Yes, we're responsible to mobilize, but we can't do, we can't be as perceptive as we like to be. So you might have to step up and say, hey, here's an area I would like to serve. And is there an opening for this? Or where might I pursue this. Some of it will be a lot more informal than that. You just know you can get more involved, more involved with other people, helping, looking for ways to serve. Finally, I want you to know in, note in verse 12, um, the purpose of all this, why you should be uh, doing this work of the ministry as I've started to describe. I'll try to explain a little more to close this. But the last part of verse 12 gives us the purpose for being equipped for the work of ministry. What's the purpose of serving? to working out this serving grace among the membership. Why are we doing this? Here's the point. For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. Ministry means service, and it's about serving others. There are so many different ways to serve others. And only as the church is fully vigorous in ministering are we healthy. To become increasingly unified... We serve together and serve one another. There are three passages in the scriptures that I'm going to give you as an assignment. We start home fellowship groups this week. I'm hoping that um, leaders that are here and leaders I've mentioned the other service, and I'll try to mention this again in the outline you get tomorrow. If you would take some time to talk with each other about exercising spiritual gifts. Now, I'm going to give a qualification. There's a lot of discussion about what are spiritual gifts exactly. And I'm going to point you to three different passages that you can write down and remember. But understand that it's difficult in real terms to divide between the talents you have, the abilities you have, your personality. All these things are designed by God. When you become a Christian, you have a perspective that's now spiritual, it's eternal. And the things you already had become spiritually enhanced. Now, at the same time, it appears that in Scripture that he does give abilities that you didn't have before that really can be attributed to something God turned on in you that wasn't there before. So I think both of these are true. We don't need to get hung up on those categories. Just realize that God's wired you in a certain way. Start with the natural things that you're, you like to, to do and find out how they could be used in the service of the king. Start there. And then from there, other things might manifest themselves. Now, let me give you three verses, and I'll close this way, and just accent a few points from them about spiritual gifts that you might use. First of all, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Notice the, the exact same theme from Peter. As good stewards of God's varied grace, varied grace, he gives a saving, he gives a serving, whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God, 
Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. In Peter, he's identifying speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, it's all service, but speaking means you might be teaching, proclaiming the Bible, making it clear. You could be speaking words of exhortation or encouragement, even rebuke at times to someone according to the Word of God, not your own wisdom. You're speaking that truth in the body of believers, and that's unifying us around the truth. It could be serving. There are physical needs that the church has, and you're rising up to help with those. It could be assisting somebody. Uh, It could be any number of things that include service to make this ministry happen, and so many things have to occur for it to happen. I mean, it's been amazing that since May 10th, worshiping outside with the Kansas wind, that somehow our deacon, Todd Phillips, has figured out a way to get a sound system that doesn't get affected by the wind. Somebody's got to do that, and that's not easy. Somebody's sitting in the sound booth. Somebody's playing the organ. Somebody's uh, contributing to work in the nursery. Go on and on and on. You know what I'm talking about. Someone is in the uh, medical emergency reverse uh, uh, rescue team right now, and they're paying attention to what's happening. We have to have all of that in the church. Gifts of speaking and service. First Peter 4 speaks to this. The second passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 down to verse 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Repeating the exact same theme now in Romans. And listen to how he, Paul uh, differentiates different gifts. And you can speak about these uh, when you talk with one another concerning these things. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith... If service in our serving, he's now lining out the different gifts that could be available within the, in the body of Christ, that are available in the body of Christ. One who teaches in his teaching. One who exhorts in his exhortation. One who contributes in generosity. One who leads with zeal. One who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So in Romans, he spells out some of the things that you could find yourself being engaged in as a believer. Finally, and I'll close by reading the outline of this in 1 Corinthians 12. And the reason why I want to do it this way, close with this, it ties back to my football illustration at the beginning, but now we have a biblical illustration, which is always better than any illustration I come up with. And this is now calling the body of Christ a human body. And think of how vivid this is when it comes to the different parts of our bodies that you have to have to function as an as a, as a operational person. You can't have the parts of your body fighting against each other or not acting in concert. So listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians, who, by the way, were a church, not as strong as the Ephesian church, struggled more with division. Ephesians had their problems, but Corinth really had their problems. So all the more the need for this this teaching from Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See the same theme. Down to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. He's talking about fingers, hands, the members of the body. So it is with Christ, he says. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Then he says in this analogy, verse 14, for the body, the human body, does not consist of one member but many. 
If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of the part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, one big eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were a big ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, the way it's been designed, Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Your eyes where they are, your ears where they are, your feet where they are. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is a picture of us as a local church. You're all important. You have certain wirings that God's given you as a person, and he's given you spiritual gifts, spiritual eyes to see how to use them and implement them in the life of the church. And I would suggest in the time frame we are in, with all the issues that are facing us and the challenges that are new to us, all the more reason to not fret about those, but say, Lord, where can I serve in this new particular epoch of our church? That's the real question we should be asking ourselves. For why? The unity of the church. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Back to the passage that we have looked at today, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we have our assignment before us. Contemplate these passages that I mentioned. 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. Consider how you might exercise the gifts Jesus Christ has given you personally so that we could be more effective and lively and vigorous as a local church and unified as a local church, more mature as a local church, so we could even be more bold in our witness for Christ in this world that so desperately needs a clear depiction of the gospel and what it is and that what people live like when they know the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the unity that you have given us in Christ as your word has declared it. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. But we have also been given a lovely diversity in this serving grace that you pour out upon us. We have a variety of people with an assortment of different spiritual gifts and abilities. Lord, please spur us on to greater service, each one of us. If we've been sitting on the bench, so to speak, give us ways to reach out and bless others in the body of Christ. I pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.